Welcome to The Deep End by On Deck, a podcast where visionary builders, creators, and thinkers discuss world-changing stories and ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozlov. And to me, it's like I always am blown away when like there'd be someone in my class who's like, yeah, I just lost all this money day trading. And then I find out that, you know, they've got $50,000 of combined consumer and student debt or whatever. And I'm like, that's a guaranteed return, meaning each dollar that you spend paying off that debt is, you can think of it as the equivalent of whatever the interest rate on that debt, you can think of it as almost like there's no investment that would offer a return as high as paying off that credit card debt. And so- That is a depressingly unsexy but helpful bit of advice. <laughs> Joining me in the deep end today is Tori Rice. Tori is the CEO and co-founder of Equi, an alternative investment hedge fund. Tori previously co-founded Archblock, a decentralized alternatives marketplace, and Harvest Money, an AI-driven debt management platform. We're taking a quick break from our series on starting companies to take a quick dive into the world of fintech. Our conversation with Tori today centers around how you can take control of your financial destiny and Tori's journey from participating in the third cohort of ODF to founding Equi. Tori Reese, welcome to the deep end. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to chat with you. We always like to start off these episodes on big problems, such opportunities, by just asking this, you know, the founder the, uh, to introduce themselves. So let's start by getting your background. We'll hear a bit about the company, how you navigate the idea maze. But let's just start with your background first. Yeah, sure. My name's Tori Reese. I'm the founder and CEO of Equi. My background. If I had to divide it, it's sort of like two major chapters. One chapter in enterprise software at you know large corporations like Microsoft, but also Silicon Valley startups. And then the second very extended chapter has been in financial technology as an entrepreneur. So I've now uh, founded uh, three uh, venture-backed uh, technology companies. And then let's actually talk about um, Equi and like what it does. Yeah. So. Equi is a, is a platform that enables individuals and investment advisors to invest in alternative investments. Uh, specifically, we started with a focus on liquid alternatives, which is considered by many the most sophisticated category. That's like hedge funds and uh, CTAs, uh, which are commodity trading accounts. And so it's an exciting area because you can produce returns across market cycles. But it's challenging because they are uh, a little bit difficult to understand. You've invited the follow-up to end all follow-ups. Why are they difficult to understand? <laughs> so it's because you know the concept of a hedge fund is it's kind of a catch-all term, right? So there's quite literally thousands upon thousands of hedge funds out there, and they can do anything from trading or arbitraging life insurance policies to Sure, trading stocks, which is what most people think of. But being able to discern the good strategies from the bad requires a heavily technical background. And so that's why kind of a combination of being able to perform diligence and uh, have the you know, sufficient capital to make the investments tends to act as a barrier for most people to invest in the category. 
And something I'd love to hear, I like how you broke up your career into two different chapters. Obviously you have the enterprise software category, then you have the startups you founded. How did those two previous chapters lead you to starting the company in the first place? Yeah, yeah, it's it's easy to construct a narrative in in hindsight, <laughs> but but it was a very nonlinear path. So you know, I had always wanted to you know my, my whole life I was starting small businesses, both in you know high school, in college, or I was working for startups. Uh, you know, one of my first internships in college was at a video conferencing startup, and so I'd always dreamt of making my Not way. Not Zoom, I'm assuming. What's that? Not Zoom, I'm assuming. No, no. Uh, there's a company called Talkbox, <laughs> uh, which it was an incredible experience. It was early days of video video conferencing. Yeah, it was just funny because I was, I was expecting you to say, I was, you know, at this little startup, you may have heard of it, you know, Zoom, but the fact you didn't mention it really meant that it wasn't Zoom. I'm sorry, go on. Yeah, no, it was the, it was the, all the ones who had to, you know, die early before, <laughs> before there was a Zoom, right? This was, because uh, this was 2000 and, uh, when I worked for them, it must have been 2008 or 2009. Uh, you know, the the journey into tech, I mean, it had always been something that I had been obsessed with because I was the nerd, the classic, you know, building your computers in, in high school and, and you know, was always the one kind of troubleshooting my friend's computers. Uh, and so it was something that I just thought of as a hobby. I never necessarily thought of it as a career path. But then when it came time to you know, start applying for jobs. I had wanted to actually go and start a company and go out to Silicon Valley and apply to accelerators because uh, that's who, you know, most of my role models, that was what I thought of, that's what they did. Um, but I felt that my options were actually constrained because I had an enormous amount of student debt. And so, you know, I couldn't take that much risk. And so instead, you know, what most of my peers were doing were applying to management consulting and banking. And I went to Northwestern, which is in the Midwest. And so there's a lot of also just normal corporation, like corporate type jobs. I wanted to go into technology. And so I applied, I just cold applied to a whole bunch of technology companies. But I think there's a key part of the journey, which was not being able to start a company because of my debt burden, that that actually played a large part in inspiring many of the companies that came later. But the path to enterprise software was really, I need a high paying job to get out of debt. <laughs> it was that simple. So then I assume you used your time in enterprise software to you know, handle your debt a bit, get a strong foundation, like really get into the space. Let's talk about like your previous startups and how that led directly, and maybe indirectly, because I like your point about how we could start with this chapter one, chapter two, but obviously you just lived your life over the next few years. But help us understand your previous startups and how that led you into this specific experience. Yeah, yeah. Actually, an important part of the journey was while at Microsoft, which is where I started my career out of college, I really had a focus on two objectives. One was, you know, become an owner of my financial destiny because uh, I felt like, you know, I had been forced to go down a career path that wasn't that or that I didn't necessarily want to pursue. And then the other was be as good at my job as humanly possible. So it was a great opportunity because I did receive like an amazing education in enterprise software and in how large corporations think about uh, risk and, and the use of technology to accelerate their businesses. So it was very useful later on. But I would say that the I started reading and consuming a lot of literature across you know blogs, but also my I just happened to have a roommate who was 
uh, becoming a financial advisor. And so I was like taking his practice tests and reading his materials. And a lot of that was like the early days of my journey into financial literacy education. But also it was the same threads that led to my first company, which was a company designed to accelerate people's journey out of debt using technology. So a lot of those early experiences were very important from let's say chapter one applying to chapter two. Um, so there is a through line. <laughs> nice, no, that's a, <laughs> there's a 10 points for keeping it consistent across narratives. I wanna go back to the way you articulated your objective at an early career level, which was you wanted to have control over your financial destiny. And that's a great way, I'm probably gonna steal that, of like summing up what the theme of this episode is and how it kind of fits into um, the work you're doing. Like, what does having control over your financial destiny, like, what does that mean to you? Yeah. And as given your experience in financial education, like how have you encountered, what does that mean to you? And then what does it mean to other people who tend to be in the space we're operating in here? So when I started down this path around 2012, you know, it was also around the same time I read The 4-Hour Workweek, and probably not the first time you've heard people tell you that that book had an influence on them. But, you know, in it, it talks about a concept of owning your time is a form of wealth as opposed to working for money or an accumulation of money being uh, a marker of it. And there was a large, this was the early days in the sort of FIRE movement, and so a lot of people, you know, there are these sub-communities uh, throughout. What's the FIRE movement? So it's, it's financial independence, retire early. And, the, okay. and that community was in its early days. There was bloggers like Mr. Money Mustache and uh, the Bogleheads Forum, which are around Vanguard. And all these people online who were asking the question you just asked me, which is, well, what does it really mean to be financially independent? And in those communities, the idea was keep your cost basis as low as possible and save and accumulate enough wealth so that you can essentially live off of your savings indefinitely and retire early so that you can do whatever you want with your time. And so it was interesting for me to just see different people asking this question and answering it in very different ways. For myself, having control of my financial destiny was not actually retiring early so I could go live on a beach or you know go and travel the world. I actually, to me, financial independence meant uh, I could basically start companies or take as many swings as I want at like building something truly impactful for the world. Uh, that was like my dream. My dream was so that instead of you know graduating with $70,000 in debt and go work for a large corporation for the rest of my life, I was like, how can I have you know maybe multiple income streams and or enough savings such that what I do with my time, whether or not it leads to a financial outcome, is my choosing. And so... I actually started a plan then in 2012 that didn't really come to fruition until 2020 because it was like an eight-year plan. Um, and it was kind of executing on that plan that I think got me to that point. But along the way, what was useful was lots of conversations because it evolved into a boot camp that I taught. You know, I had this spreadsheet, all these tools I built. Oh, cool. And it was asking a lot of other people this question too, right? Like, Saving money is great, sure, but what do you want to do with it? Like, what, what do you want to accomplish in life? What are your goals in life? And then money is just a means to achieving those goals. And there's no right or wrong answer necessarily, but I think that's the answer to the question is like, it can, it's a tool to help you accomplish your goals, full stop. Yeah, no, there's, there's, there's so many things here. I want to 
It's actually kind of funny. I think you actually are the first guest to bring up four hour work week um, oh. on the podcast. And I think that kind of speaks to the fact that a lot of these like idea books kind of go through cycles. So had a lot of atomic reference, atomic habits references, but uh, first for our work week one, what happened to that community focused on like that kind of idea? Because I think the whole interesting thing that happened after 2020 is people were at a very literal level forced to ask themselves, actually, like, how is my time spent? Where am I living? Like, what am I kind of working on? Did you kind of like follow and stay engaged in those communities? Like, let me hear what you think about that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Those early communities, another one would be Ramit Sethi, who wrote the book, I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Amazing book. Highly recommend it. He always jokes. And now like, a Netflix show. Yeah. We're, uh, we're dropping that, all the references we can get. That's right. <laughs> and full circle, he was actually an investor slash advisor in my first company. So it's, again, these, thir- these kind of through lines. So those communities, not only are they still around, but they've actually grown massively because, again, my graduation from college was also the emergence from the great financial crisis. And we've now been on a what is essentially a 12-year secular bull run. And during these large bull runs, you know, it's seemingly like you can't miss, right? Like every investment is doing well, whether it's in real estate or in public equities or in venture. And so there's a lot of wealth creation. And so I do actually think these communities all of a sudden were filled with a whole new generation of people who are coming into wealth and then asking this question. And so I actually think that the best thing about these communities is, you know, having peers who are going through similar experiences and asking themselves similar questions, the value is in being able to help and advise one another. And it's very similar, honestly, with the startup community, where for me, the startup community, including OnDeck, has been invaluable in accelerating my journey as a founder. But these journeys are journeys towards financial independence. But I think you can't be on a journey of financial independence without first thinking about, wait, what is the destination? And I think that's actually very, very difficult for people because the concept of retirement, that's actually a, a new idea. And I don't even necessarily know if it's a good one at that. Like I would actually push back and say like retirement can be a really challenging like state of being for many people, like not having purpose and, and, and you can find purpose in retirement in other ways to be clear. But I think this idea of like work, work, work until you can afford to not work, you know, there's, I think deeper questions to ask along the way. Cause it's, it, you know, I've seen how people without work, you know, maybe they loved their work or maybe they hated it, but when you're left with nothing to do, that's not necessarily a good outcome. And before we get back to um, equity real quick, I'd love to hear when you said you had like this eight year plan and you acted on it to the degree to which you feel comfortable talking about it. Like, what was your eight-year plan? I love plans. I like when people have the ability to tell that story. So I'm just curious, like, you know, to what degree did you like pull it off? Was it more about like the directional place you were trying to go than actually hitting, found a company in 2016, do a next company in 2018? Like, tell me more about that. Yeah. Uh, no, so it, it had a number of steps along the way, right? Step one, get out of debt, right? That was, you know, first and foremost, it's like, it's very hard to start building wealth if you are still in debt, uh, just fundamentally. So at a, liter- at, a, at a very literal level, it's impossible. <laughs> totally. And, and to me, it's like, I always am blown away when like, I, there'd be someone in my class who's like, yeah, I just lost all this money day trading. And then I find out that, you know, they've got $50,000 of combined consumer and student debt or whatever. And I'm like, 
that's a guaranteed return, meaning each dollar that you spend paying off that debt is, you can think of it as the equivalent of whatever the interest rate on that debt, you can think of it as almost like there's no investment that would offer a return as high as paying off that credit card debt. And so- That is a- depressingly unsexy but helpful bit of advice. <laughs> As in like, there's, there's nothing cool, but that's a, that's a, that's a really, oh, question then. Um, sorry to interrupt your eight-year plan story, but to what degree do you think that like wealth management and you know handling debt and finances is about like a proper mental framework? Because honestly, I'm thinking about a credit card payment that I may have been a little uh, unaggressive on last month. Is solving that problem, quote unquote, a matter of just having the right men- mental approach to thinking of it as, that's an investment because you're not paying X thing in the future. Yeah. So what I, there's a handful of kind of what I think of like nifty ways to think about your finances in my mind. Like when I break it down in my workshop, so I think of the expense side of your personal balance sheet as being, um, or not, you know, cash flow, same, let's say, uh, as being your needs and your wants. So there's the things you need. That's like housing and food and transportation in most instances, you know, but it might be other things like childcare, et cetera. It depends, you know, your stage of life, but there's your needs and then there are your wants. Well, I, you know, I want to go to yoga. I want to, you know, get, you know, certain cosmetics or I want to do a certain amount of shopping or a certain amount of travel. Those are your wants or like discretionary spending, right? So that's on the expense side of the cash flow. But then if you look on the, let's call it uh, saving side, you know, I think of it or the way I, help people think about it is you should think about it as paying yourself. And again, this is, I think Ramit Ramit talks about this a lot and a number of folks do, but paying yourself, there's paying yourself in the near term, which is like short-term savings for trips or for a wedding that might be a few years away. Um, And then there's paying yourself for the future. And this can be paying yourself for a trip around the world or retirement, if that's what you want, or, you know, going to get a higher degree. Uh, Those are all longer term goals that you might have for your life. And, and by the way, getting out of debt is a goal. That is a form of paying yourself. And so mm-hmm. just simply thinking about it like that and then asking yourself the question, what do I want to accomplish? It's then a very easy formula. Cause like the, I'll give you one quick example. If someone says to me, well, I want to take a year and travel the world. I'm like, great. What do you like approximately think it'll cost to do that? And it's like, okay, well, that'll be roughly $30,000. Then you can say, okay, and when do you approximately want to do it? I want to do it three years from now. And it's like, okay, great. That's 36 months between now and when you need $20,000. Let's take the 20,000, divide by 36, and here's the amount you would need to put of your cash flow towards that savings goal to have the amount you need to take that trip. And they might look at their spreadsheet and say, oh, well, at my current income, that's just not realistic. So they either need to increase their income or decrease the cost of that trip. But again, it's like there's very clear levers that you can pull. And it's I think it's actually just about encouraging people to have a healthy debt dialogue. Because I think the hardest thing about money and issues of investing is that it is seen as a taboo subject. And so most people are in some form of conscious or unconscious denial about the reality of their financial situation. And like moving past that and getting to a point of just acknowledging it is super empowering. Like the greatest, most rewarding moment in all of my classes, and this is literally what drove me through all of my companies, is there's like a distinct moment where I can see on someone's face as we're working through the workshop and they get to the point where they went from kind of like scared and ashamed and confused about their finances to empowered. And it's like you see the light come on and they're like, I have a plan. And I see, even if it's, you know, maybe 
you're not thrilled about it <laughs> and maybe you have to make some big changes in your life, but you at least have your hands around it. And it's, I think it's super empowering because this isn't rocket science. Uh, and this is the personal finance side of things. Uh, you know, obviously it's very different when we talk about investing and taxes and like there's so many subcategories, but I think there's really some basics that if we just taught everybody, I think we would have a much healthier society. Yeah, well, you know, that's, that's kind of the meta topic um, for the episode though. So I wanna, do wanna get back to the uh, eight year plan. So debt, approach debt, like how are you thinking about the next like seven, eight years then? Yeah, so get out of debt, not step number one. Step number two was spend one year at a time creating additional income streams. So for me, you can either accumulate a certain amount of savings such that you can like draw it down to pay your monthly expenses, or you can have other income streams that offset your expenses. Those are like two different ways of accomplishing the same thing, right? Which is this idea of financial independence. So my thinking was work my day job, do really well at that. And then in my free time, over the course of 12 months, pick one at a time, a side business to create such that at the end of about a three year period, I would have three additional income streams independent of my day job. So that was sort of step two. And then following that would be, you know, step three is at that point I'm financially independent and I can take any amount of risk I want, uh, which later turned out to be going to Silicon Valley, taking a almost 70, like seven zero, 70% pay cut from Microsoft to go work at a very small early stage company but that risk really paid off when the company you know, did very well. But more importantly, I saw it as like the risk to, to get a great education in, in Silicon Valley. And then the step beyond that was uh, starting my own company. And then the much further out you know, along the way was you know, be saving the entire way along the journey such that I could hit an, arbitrary, an arbitrarily large number like in, in, sa- in like liquid savings, where at that point I felt like even if what I'm doing with my time, which is very risky, doesn't work out. Uh, I have this sort of safety net that I've built for myself to fall back on. And so I can keep taking risks. And so that is essentially the, the plan. And it, and it kind of roughly played out that way. There were setbacks, obviously, and unexpected challenges, but yeah. Yeah, that's the, that's the nature of this space. So normally I ask the question about how you navigated the idea maze to get to your company, in this case, Equi, um, earlier on in the podcast. I'm actually really glad we're asking it at this point because it's just very clear that you're an analytical person. Um, that's kind of come out through the anecdotes you've told. So I'm like really legitimately fascinated by like the process, the steps, the alternate paths, the alternate models. You also worked across a couple of different business categories, obviously, like workshops are different than venture-backed startups. So just walk us through the idea maze, right? So like, what year is it? Like when you're, find, when you're founding it, why did you decide to take like the specific path you took? Like why this specific idea? Take it whatever direction you want within that framework. Yeah, like you, I was really interested in the frameworks that people use to start companies. And so each time I actually took a different approach, which is, interesting because three different companies but three completely different uh, approaches to starting them. Uh, The first time me and my co-founder would get together early mornings and weekends and we would just hack on ideas together. So we'd be like, how can we test an MVP super quickly? What ideas do you have? And we'd choose which one of our ideas we'd like the most and we'd test it and until we finally had an idea that we were really excited about and decided to go raise money for. Um, So that's kind of the uh, 
hack and test and MVP kind of ship on nights and weekends sort of approach. And you know that was good enough to get us to to, to funding. And that one was again in the in the debt space. And that was inspired by my experience getting out of debt and some of the hacks that I used that I felt like we could automate for for people to help them uh, get out of debt faster. That that was a company called Harvest. The second company uh, was very different because I after the first company. Uh, which didn't work out, and I learned a lot about how important the relationship is between you and your co-founder. You know, and we, you know, fortunately, I can say we're, we're friends today. But we had a very difficult co-founder breakup that you know ended up in us in returning capital, and and uh, it was a very disappointing outcome. And I went out on my own to really think about the world, myself, my definition of success. After doing that. During that period of time, I was just allowing myself to sort of follow my curiosity, and I decided wherever my mind chooses to take me, I'm just going to follow it down that rabbit hole. And at that time, uh, and by the way, I'll pause because this could be a, a long story, and maybe you just want this. No, no, go for it. This is good. Okay, yeah. okay. So, so the second time. Well, actually, no. There actually is. One, there actually is one question mm-hmm. because you've taken a bunch of you know swings at bat here. How did a founder co-founder breakup? Influence how you thought about your subsequent swings because if I were if I were you, um, we were different people at a couple different levels, obviously. But I would just be very much like, okay, so now I'm in my own space, doing my own iterating, um, you know, hacking and like MVPing, like led to this not working out with this person. Like, how did that how did that experience like shift your approach? Yeah, well, in that instance, you know, we were very close friends, and uh, before starting the company together, and there the problem was actually that we did a 50-50 split and. I regretted doing that. And you, you, there's advice all around the internet about this, so it's good advice. Don't do a 50-50 split. If, if it had been 51-49, for example, and as CEO, I think I, I should have put my foot down to make it that way. I think the company could have gone through that co-founder breakup and been all right. But the difficulty is when you have two co-founders that reach an impasse, and if they have no way of settling it themselves, then it's essentially a stalemate that lasts indefinitely, especially if you don't have a board yet. So again, these are issues of corporate governance that was really important for me to learn. And so, you know, going into the next companies, that lesson carried over with me. Also understanding that while it's important to match skill sets or complementary skill sets, what's I think way more important is matching, you know, temperaments and working styles and being complementary in that way. And so I think it takes time. This third time, you know, my relationship with my co-founder is the strongest co-founder relationship I've ever had, and you know, Paul Graham likes to say that you know your relationship with your co-founder is is almost like a marriage, and it's because you go through so many highs and lows, and and you know, really constant change, and uh, you know, you're talking all day every day, and so you know, it, take it that seriously, right? Like who you're gonna who you're gonna have that type of relationship with. Yeah. So then we were back to the um, you know second company. So you're coming out of that experience. Um, so you're you're this. What is the kind of alternate model for like coming through the maze that you came up with the second time around? Yeah. So the second and third were more similar. Where I was following my curiosity and writing about my basically writing out my research. And at the time, I was very curious about you know it's 2017. Blockchain was having its moment. It was one of the first really, or you know, one of the larger bull runs. And uh, it was, there was all this hype around, you know, blockchain as this panacea for the world. 
and I didn't buy that. <laughs> and so I was trying to like really spend some time thinking and like reading the actual white papers and thinking about the technology and implications for society while just reading books and random domains and then writing just my ideas around where I thought it could go and then putting those ideas out there and you know emailing people who I saw talking about it let's say on Twitter or you know blogging about it and there weren't that many people who were interested in the same niche that I was at that time and so it it was a small universe of people who were curious about the same thing I was curious about and then starting a dialogue with them and you know that led down the path to starting my second company which is now called Archblock we created the first dollar backed stablecoin which grew to you know multi billion dollars uh, market cap as well as um, TrueFi which is a, a B2B lending protocol it's, it's one of the largest in the world and both of those businesses were really a practice in following curiosity and being very responsive to like the market and what the market wanted not trying to build in anticipation of market demand that didn't exist but mm. responding to like very real market demand and also just sort of spending enough time thinking about where the puck is going to be able to skate to it right and so that is very similar to the approach i took with um with equi yeah so let's talk about equi then yes yeah, so with equi i went back to that model of curiosity I, you know for me curiosity is like a guiding uh, guiding light guiding principle and i was very curious about how are we going to get out of this end game that we were facing with the fed which it was like 2019 2020 we're bouncing along the zero line of interest rates and you know we'd been on just this amazing bull run and i had been teaching what at the time was like fairly you know was the dogma around saving and investing which was well just dollar cost average into vanguard funds and and you know you'll be fine it's just going to grow in perpetuity over time and that's the kind of way to invest and i had started to question that as my reading had expanded into other areas around alternatives and you know specifically david swenson who led the yale endowment there's some books that he wrote on portfolio management that really changed my thinking and set me off down a bunch of other paths around the value of having more alternative investments in your portfolio and and how it can make you more resilient through different economic cycles and i've been thinking about that a lot and and the implications of if there is this end game taking place with the fed and we're about to go into a cycle of volatile or rising interest rates i thought about the implications for that on sort of the standard vanguard portfolio which i felt was going to be terrible <laughs> uh and and so i was very concerned cuz i was like okay well if that is not a good outcome and everyone is putting money into like target date funds and their retirement accounts and you know all the big fintech platforms are automating putting you into stocks and bonds and so it's baked in at the systems level how people are thinking about investing like their investing philosophy is baked into the products themselves and like well what if that philosophy is wrong <laughs> and how are people going to course correct and so i was really obsessed with that idea and started a google doc while i was doing research on that and basically as i'd read a book or i'd talk to someone or uh you know read a, a let's say a research paper put out by one of the banks or whatever i would slowly just fill in more ideas and try and construct a narrative around what i thought was happening and what are some of the problems 
and my hypotheses around like potential solutions. And then I would just invite the smartest people I knew to that Google Doc and say like, tell me what I'm missing, tell me where I'm wrong. And cool. Yeah. And so navigating that maze was super fun because I, I made a point of like asking for introductions to all the different thought leaders in various parts of the space so that I could, you know, ask them to tell me like poke holes in all of my arguments or premises and use that to sort of create a new set of questions. And then, you know, each time you get on the maze, you might reach a dead end and that's okay. Cause then you're like, okay, I'm going to try this different leg of the maze. And the funny thing is I, you know, in the Google doc where I'm soliciting feedback, there's just endless comment bubbles from all these different people. And it inadvertently turned into a fundraising mechanism because when I'd invite a lot of my VC friends, they'd see other VCs commenting in the doc and they'd be like, Oh, are, are you raising money for this right now? And and I would say, oh no no no, I'm just you know this is just me investigating. I'm just figuring things out. And multiple times, you know, later on in the process, I started to receive like unsolicited, you know, offers to to fund the company because they could sort of see where it was going. And so it was interesting because that was kind of an unintended consequence of this style of navigating the idea maze. But it was really useful because I, I had such a wide range of. Of conversations uh, as as I continued crafting it. You know, but so so okay. So here's the here's the question. And so as you're as you're pursuing these ideas, these fancies that interest you, at what point do you? And once again, I'm a content creator, so I'm a slightly different space than you. But I think just the idea of this running Google Doc is actually a very like compelling one, and that it's so straightforward. At what point does that change from, hey, I'm exploring, I'm learning, I'm inviting to oh shit, this is actually kind of like a fundraising mechanism. Maybe I shouldn't just purely like IDA and explore and do those different things. Like, I'm, I'm curious in how that shift would kind of operate on you. Yeah. Well, you always, you can't separate the point in time from the activity itself. So this was happening in 2020, right? During the pandemic. And uh, so I'm stuck at home. And I just gave myself an arbitrary quota of a certain number of research conversations that I wanted to have each week. Uh, I was doing uh, fractional work like as a fractional executive at other Series A and seed stage startups. So I'd spend like half my time advising companies and, and that was like producing some cash flow. And then the other half of my time just doing research. And basically what starts to happen is as you form a better map in your head, and the idea maze I love is such a great analogy because I think back to like my nerdy early days, like playing Command and Conquer and Warcraft. And it's like, or, or, you know, different games where as you go through the map, it goes from like blackness to you start to see more yeah. and more of the maze. And you're like, oh, I've uncovered this corner and I've uncovered this corner. <laughs> so as you see a greater picture of the maze, you can start to ask yourself real questions of like, is this viable? Why might it not work? And my framing was actually very different. My initial company, I started with a huge chip on my shoulder and I'll, I just like needed to be an entrepreneur and I had to start a company, not because I was necessarily had a great solution, but because I just needed to start something. This time I was taking a very different approach because I had suffered through enough pain with these previous two companies that I was like, I do not want to start a company. So my framing is, how can I prove that it is not possible to solve this problem? Because I will not start this company if it is not possible. And so having that be the framing, meaning it's almost like disprove the null hypothesis is like what they talk about in like a science uh, you know, terminology. It, I needed to convince myself that it could be done as opposed to trying to 
like coming in with the frame of it's possible and you know that makes you a little blind to it. And so once I knew that the only way it was possible was I needed the right co-founder because it was it required highly, highly specialized knowledge and I needed to have a regulatory framework that made sense and I needed to prove that there was demand in the market for it and we narrowed it down to those three things. I was like, if I can get these three things done in like a I defined period of time, I gave myself like a six month period of time, then I will start it. If I don't, then I'm going to go to graduate school. <laughs> that was what I was going to do at the time. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, okay. What were you thinking graduate school wise? I really like school. I really love learning. And, you know, on deck was really fun. I was taking some online courses during the pandemic. I took a class at Stanford. I took a class um, called Building a Second Brain, which I highly recommend to to everyone that's Tiago. in Yeah. Amazing if you're in we, a we need to have a We need to have a shout out section of this episode. We're hitting a lot of the big brain people, but yeah, go on. Yeah. And so I was taking these classes and I'm like, oh man, it's been so long since I've just like learned for the fun of learning. And so I was like, I'm not going to force starting a company unless I have something that's really compelling and impactful and that I'd be excited to work on. So, you know, I basically said, all right, here's the thing. I'm going to pull up the Stanford application, get that done. I'm going to pull up this research doc. And one of the one of two things going to happen. I'm either going to run out of time and go to school uh, and just, I think, enjoy that. And maybe it'll prompt new ideas and new relationships, new whatever. Or there's going to be something compelling enough and impactful enough that I will go work on that. Was this going to be like an MBA or like a research focused thing? Like what were you like thinking? Yeah, I was thinking either a master's where I could do more research type stuff or go to GSB and, you know, basically end up doing a similar thing, meeting hopefully co-founders and finding new domains <laughs> of knowledge where I could pursue curiosity. But, you know, obviously starting a company, I think, is much better than an MBA, in my opinion. But I do admit there's enormous value to the network and who you meet, which is why I did on deck. You know, I think you can meet great people that way. It's obviously different when you're given this extended period of time to just think and not work and meet people and explore whatever you're curious about. So it's kind of like an expensive way to do that. Couple last big questions here. So one, I just think that it's it's so interesting that you could work in a space where you could set out those three standards for here's what I need to hit in order to actually pursue this. Um, as a business, I'm curious. So, t so two questions. I'll ask you the first one first. One, to what degree do you think that's possible in like the broad different categories of startups that people have? Because um, it seems like the work that you're doing was particularly like research and domain oriented. I can think of plenty of like business categories where like, I'm sorry, there's just a limit to how much you can actually do with a doc, with research, and actually you should yeah. probably just get out there and talk to customers. Yeah. Um, so how generalizable is that process you went through to broad categories of startups, like outside of the financial one that you got into? Yeah, I mean, look, my view is that the barrier to starting a company has gotten lower and lower and lower and lower, which net is a good thing. However, that means that there is more and more and more and more competition. So I think... Ideally, you go to an area that is harder to compete in. So I think going to like the more niche you can go, the, the better to a certain extent. Otherwise, you're just going to be competing against more people. So, you know, again, for this business, because it is so challenging and requires so much spe spe uh, specialized knowledge and technology and data, 
it, it's allowing us to build like a very real moat. Like it gives me very hard for people to compete with our business uh, along the vectors that we've chosen to, to compete. And so to me that, that allows you to create more enduring value and like actually get to a point where you can create breakaway momentum as a business or as a founder. Now that's not, by the way, there's plenty of small, you can build any type of business in any category. And like, there are lots of great multi-million dollar businesses can be built in almost any category. So I would always caution anyone of over-indexing on anyone's advice, including my own. Shout out to like Andrew <laughs> Warner as an example. Like he's probably, I mean, he's done a few thousand podcasts at this point, I think, uh, with startup founders. And listen to like 500 episodes there and you'll hear 500 different ways to start a company. And so I think that's a really important thing to remember is like, sample from all of them, see what works for you. Yeah, and then the second to last question here is, as you've actually progressed with the startup, as you've gone down this path, what were the gaps between what you could game out during that six month pre-grad school deadline and the actual difficulties, bottlenecks, or maybe even like opportunities you actually encountered when you did the actual thing? Because this is just once again fascinating to me because I think my, if I'm self-aware, I would admit to myself that I'm attracted to your model of like gaming this out, but then I would just game out basically forever and never actually do it. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people fall into that danger. So can you just talk about the gap between the gaming out and then now you're actually, you know, to use an overused uh, metaphor, you're actually in the arena, you're doing things, like what's yeah. that gap? Uh, well, no, I agree with you. I think like it's very easy to fall into analysis paralysis. And so there's no substitute for just starting. So to be clear, one of the three things I talked about was like proving there's demand. So that to me was, is one of the foundational things that we needed to prove before we start the business. But that is starting the business, right? Like proving demand can take many forms. But for us, it was hosting these monthly market calls uh, and talking to lots of people in our target demographic you know, people who have created early wealth um, but want to move to generational wealth and explain to them what we're building and talk about, you know, have Itai talk about markets and his investment thesis and get to a point where actual customers or prospective customers are saying, please take my money. <laughs> like, that's the <laughs> ultimate validation. And so I think in terms of the move between research and execution is getting to a point where a customer is handing you money. What is the earliest version of the product where a customer will say, take my money? And so we were very clear on doing that. And we had people giving us their money very early saying like, this is solving a real problem that I have. I align with the investment philosophy that Itai has. Uh, I want to invest this way. You know, I mean, if you look at our growth from zero to 100 million in assets, it happened like that. But that was because we had put in so much work along the way to develop our investment philosophy, talk to customers, you know, prove out the idea. But I think that's all, it's one and the same. Like, you, you shouldn't too much divorce research from execution because talking to customers is the best research, right? Yeah. And here's the final wrap question. I think you're actually incredibly equipped to answer. So the broad meta problem issue we're discussing in this session is just like how do people um, pursue um, financial independence? You know, achieve the thing that you set out to achieve while you were at Microsoft handling student debt. You've obviously done, um, approached this issue from the perspective of as a startup founder, but also like as a very unscalable to a certain degree like workshop workshop you know, in, in instructor, to what degree do you think this broad problem, that problem being defined as the fact that a lot of people don't feel like they have control of their financial destiny, 
to what extent is that a problem of there not being enough people teaching workshops versus, wow, like we need new companies, we need new vehicles, we need new um, investment styles. Like, what, what, basically, the question is, is this a personal problem or is this a societal structural one that technology and startups can address? Yeah, so the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> In the sense that it, everything you said, uh, it is not a point solution, meaning, to be really clear, Itai and I and Jeremy, you know, we built this company initially to solve our own problem, right? We fall squarely in the category of the customers that we are trying to help. So in that regard, like it, it was early on relatively easy because we're building for ourselves. That being said, and we have enormous you know, skin in the game. I mean, we, we've committed to putting 70 plus percent of our own personal net worth on the platform alongside our customers, which we think is like, that should be sort of table stakes to show that, you know, don't do as I say, do as I do. And the, mm -hmm. the way I think about the solution is it's, it's a full spectrum, right? You, you need to uh, you know, solve it at a systems level through education, right? And I think it should be you know, high school mandatory education around financial literacy would solve so many problems that you know, plague society in this category. Because if you just knew before you agreed to take on, let's say, huge amounts of debt, what that actually means for you and your life, that would make a huge difference. You know, maybe you start in college or you start in high school, learn more in college, but by the time you graduate, you, you at least have a decent understanding of how to use money as a tool. So that's the education side. But then we do need an army of entrepreneurs. And there are now a lot of great companies that come out in the past, you know, 10, 20 years that solves the problem. There's because there's different problems at each stage along someone's wealth building journey from negative mm -hmm. net worth to early zero or you know, from zero to early wealth, from early wealth to generational wealth, like it's unrealistic to think one company will solve all of those problems. So you need the education, you need the entrepreneurs and the technology building solutions for each step along the journey. And you know, we, we need as a society to also create a safe enough space where you can have dialogues uh, about you know, money and the challenges that you're facing. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of trailblazers that are building communities around it too. Uh, and so I think that, that all of it together can, can have a, a, a really large impact. So that's the answer is like, yes, I think it, it, you, you need it all. So Tori, you just mentioned how you all at Equi are putting a lot of energy into education, the YouTube, Twitter, all those good things, current potential customers. Why is that so important to you? You know, one of the things that I love most about Equi and the journey that we're on is that we're coming from a deeply researched and aligned place. And so we have a lot of confidence. Like you heard about my journey with research and, and my co-founder Itai actually takes research to a 10 times greater extreme. Uh, but we have enough confidence that to accredited investors that we provide education to like all these resources to learn about the space that their journey will take them to the same conclusions we've drawn. And in fact, like we invite people to you know, point out, are there flaws in our logic and in our thinking? We're very open to changing our mind, but it, it ultimately comes from a, a degree of confidence in our solution. And that goes back to the earlier point I made around skin in the game is you know, there's a lot of places where you'd see the founder maybe build a solution and be like, well, it's not for me. I do something else with my money. We ultimately built this to solve our problem and we want to give other people the education to help them move along in their journey and the tools right, the financial products and the software to address the problems that we're 
you know, confident that they'll encounter, but can overcome. So that, that's, that's why education is such an important uh, thing to us. Tori, this has been really fun. Um, can you just shout out, um, obviously, like the website where people should go to learn more about your work and your thoughts, and then we'll uh, wrap the episode. Yeah, definitely. So you can find out more about us at equi.com. That's E-Q-U-I. Uh, if you are an accredited investor and you've worked hard, whatever business that you're in, whether you've built a business, joined a business, uh, and you want to go from early wealth to creating generational wealth, you know, we're going to be putting out a lot of educational content around that. We also have investment solutions for that. Uh, and yeah, you can find us on Twitter and YouTube. And that's the, that's the pitch. Thanks for joining us on The Deep End. Thank you. Thanks for joining us in The Deep End. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.